you grab a Bible and go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, this is the last parable we're going to be looking at in this chapter. We've spent several weeks in this chapter, so it's been good stuff for us to kind of see the, uh, the way that this chapter is packed full with a lot of parables uh, from Jesus. So if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to go there. If you don't, you can look it up on your iPad, your iPhone, or Android, whatever you have, uh, or you can look it at in the bulletin as well as on the screen. And so if you're just joining us, uh, this is what we've been doing since the beginning of the year. We've been working through... Uh, some of the parables of Jesus. And so parables are very, I mean, they're really unique in the sense that um, they, they have a, a purpose to kind of help people understand complex things. And then at the same time, they have a purpose to kind of harden hearts who don't really want to hear the message of Jesus. It's, it's interesting. And you even see that in Matthew 13, that, that both and is happening with the telling of parables. And so people will say, hey, Jesus taught parables so he can kind of connect with his audience and kind of make sure they understand what's going on. And that's partly true, but the other part of it is he taught in parables to kind of keep it mysterious, kind of make people misunderstand what's going on. And it doesn't take a scholar or a really well-educated person to see the different kinds of interpretations of parables that are really out there. It's so complex, more complex than what we realize. And I'm thankful for those parables where Jesus gives us the interpretation. So one of those is the short one we're going to look at today uh, the parable of the net. It gives us the interpretation. We don't have to guess. Like, okay, we know what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, but there are a lot of others that are really, really hard to kind of get. What is Jesus really uh, after here? And so it kind of has a dual purpose there to help understand and then at the same time to help others not understand. Just a really mysterious thing that Jesus is doing with parables. And so what we've tried to do is kind of divide these up into three big categories. So we start off in the parables of money. I uh, just talked about our stuff and being generous with our stuff. We spent a few weeks in the parables of the kingdom and what is the kingdom of God like, the kingdom of heaven like. And then we're going to talk a few weeks on the parables of judgment. And, um, and so, yeah, like, uh, it, that's a hard one. And, and I just, just want to kind of lay my cards on the table. Uh, my cards are saying this. This is really hard. This is some really heavy, difficult things for us to talk about. I realize there's some of us in this room that probably doesn't agree with all that I'm going to be talking about here today. Maybe your defenses will be rising up and you just can't think of Christianity and God who judges and, and, and hell and all that kind of stuff is really hard for your, your mind to wrap around. And I just, I just want to say, like, I understand. And I want to say also that we're a church that sits under the Word of God, not over the Word of God. And I'm a pastor who sits under the Word of God, not over the Word of God. And so I'm doing you a disservice if we're neglecting hard truths because they're hard for us to really hear and sometimes even swallow. And so just like I said with the parables of the money, if I, if I didn't talk about money, then we wouldn't be a very Jesus-centered church because Jesus talks a lot about money. And I wouldn't be doing you a service also if we didn't talk about judgment. And we wouldn't be a very Jesus-centered church if we didn't talk about judgment because Jesus talks a lot about judgment. Over half of the parables in the book of Matthew have to do with judgment. And so, yeah, uh, they're hard things to hear, but they're needed truths that we need to wrestle with um, and hopefully, Lord willing, uh, embrace. And so, yeah, um, I hope you're excited about listening to it. <laughs> if you're not, maybe as we get into it, uh, we'll jump there. So I, I, a couple of other things that I've wrestled with, like I'm 
you know, I'm kind of like um, naturally kind of a passionate guy. Like I am. I'm, I'm out there. You know, it's tapered down over the years. Life has a way of doing that for you and, and humbling you. And so I, I'm trying to kind of taper my intensity because, you know, hard message matched with intensity can be going, oh, and I'm saying like, like deer in headlights, or I'm just going to tune him out, man. He's getting too sweaty up there. And so I'm trying to, like, really balance this out a little bit better. I, I always have in my mind, and sometimes even in my notes, I'll, I'll have things like calm down, like just reminders, calm down, Lau. People are not as excited as you. Calm down, you know, like you want them to hear, not be blowing it away. Um, and then the second thing that I'm, I'm trying to navigate through talking about judgment is just uh, the, the proper use of humor. You know, I, like, I love to laugh. I feel like I'm a joyful person. I do think life has punched me in the gut enough to where I was a little bit more joyful in my 20s than I am now in my 40s, maybe. I, I want to kind of recapture that a little bit better. Maybe it's a more mature joy. I don't know. Um, but, like, sometimes what humor will do is it will uh, take away the weight of a truth. And I just want to do my best not to do that. Because sometimes my humor is not like planned humor. It's not like I got notes in here, tell a joke. You know, here's a joke, Lyle. It just, it's just me. You know, it kind of comes out a little bit. And so uh, now that I've gotten you going, like, how should I respond? I don't know what to do. <laughs> so if you laugh, it's okay. I, I'm, I'm trying to be a little more um, kind of aware of that. So, all right. Okay. With that said, let's stand together in honor of reading God's word. So Matthew 13, we're just going to read verses 47 through 50. And so once again, this is Jesus speaking, and here's what he says. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore, and then they sat down and collected the good fish in, the ba- in baskets, but threw the bad away. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them, the wicked, into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I realize that we say that every time we gather. After reading the text, we always say this is the word of the Lord. And I I pray that, that the repetition of that does not lose its weight. Uh, because this is your words to us. These are not Lyle's words. These are not man's words. These are your words to us. And these are hard words, difficult words. And my prayer for all of us is that we'll hopefully drop all of our defenses. And we'll have a posture of receiving this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So here's, here's kind of what I want to do today. I want to give you a little map of where we're going. I, I want, to, want to come back and just kind of work through the parable. It's just three verses, so I just want to spend some time working through the parable so that we're kind of all on the same page and what uh, Jesus is talking about. And I think even in that, I, I think we'll be able to answer a, a couple of objections that people commonly have about judgment. And so I, I think it's woven in this parable and fitting for us to talk about those objections. And then I just want to land on one kind of application that I, that I feel like will extend itself over the next several weeks. And so we might just kind of like land on one particular application of uh, more of a general principle holistically about judgment that I want us to kind of sit in a little bit as a body here. All right? 
And so let's kind of jump back into this parable and look and see what Jesus is talking about here. So starting in verse 47, where he said once again, and this is just kind of a connecting to the whole, not necessarily connecting to the previous parable. So once again, Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, says this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down in the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And then when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore, and then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. And so you got to keep in mind when, when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a net, he's thinking about the whole process of what this would be called like dragnet fishing. That's what, that's what he's talking about here. That's the, the mental process, the mental picture that the disciples would have here. So he's not just saying that the kingdom of heaven is like a net, period. He's talking about the whole process that has taken place when you do this type of fishing. And so that's We've said this before, and I'll just reiterate it again. Like, we got to be careful in reading into every detail of a parable. Now, I know Jesus does this sometimes. He does, with the, does this in chapter 13, actually. He does this with the parable of the sower. He kind of reads into every detail. He does it with the parable of the weeds and the wheat in chapter 13. reads into every detail. But these are his stories. You know, he kind of has the freedom to read into every detail. When we as human beings try to do that, it gets really squirrely. And it gets really weird really fast. And sometimes we'll miss the big point of what Jesus is trying to get across here. So we don't want to read into every detail in this, like the net, the fishermen, the shore, you know, the, all that. No, we just want to say, okay, like what Jesus is trying to say is the kingdom of heaven is like the whole process of fishing like this. And so kind of fishing like this looks like, this is what a dragnet looks like. This is a, a picture I found on the internet. Um, I did not draw that. I could probably draw that, but that's basically... <laughs> What it is, you got a large net, you got weight on the bottom of the net so that it goes directly on the bottom, you got floats on the top, so it kind of floats on the top and it captures this huge net. So you can fish it on the shore like you see in these men, or you can do it on the back of the boat. And so the disciples got this. Half of them were fishermen by trade. Here's more of a modern picture of what it would look like. So, and when you do this, obviously you're catching all kinds of fish. You know, you're not just, you know, it's not like you got a specific lure that you're going after a bass or a specific lure going after crappie. No, you're just, you're just getting all kinds of fish here. And so the process, they, they were familiar with this. Once you drag it on shore, you would take the time to separate the clean fish from the unclean fish. And then the clean fish in this time would be any fish that has uh, scales and fins. That would be edible for them at this time. And if it didn't have scales and fins, then you threw it out. It was kind of the unclean bad fish. So, you know, to translate it for me, and, and I enjoy fishing. I don't do a whole lot of it. I got a little lake or a little pond that's in our little neighborhood that we go fishing at sometimes. And so good fish for me would be like bass. Bass is good to eat. Catfish, that would be nice to eat. You know, crappie, bluegill, sunfish. That's kind of good fish for me now. The Sea of Galilee would be different. That'd be more ocean kind of sea or a fish. And I don't have like an ocean that lives next to me, so I don't know a lot about ocean fish, right? So bad fish, to, to, uh, you can laugh at the beginning of the sermon, all right? It's okay. <laughs> We're not getting to the weighty part. This is all right. So kind of work with me a little bit. Uh, bad fish would be like carp. You know what I'm saying? That would be kind of modern translation for me. Nobody wants to eat a fish that sucks on the bottom. Amen? Okay, maybe not. Maybe you like carp. I, I don't think I want to eat that. So that's, that's what we got here. And this imagery, like the disciples understood this. Like they understood this whole entire process. And so with that in mind, then Jesus makes a shift. And he explains to us why he's kind of giving them this picture. Look what he says in verse 49. This is how it will be at the end of the age. And so the end of the age is, is kind of the consummation of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus inaugurates it. We're living in the in-between time. 
And there's coming a time, an end of the age, where Jesus comes back. He's going to set all things right, and he's going to start the new heavens and the new earth. You know, this is, this is what humanity is going toward. Humanity and life and history is not cyclical. It's linear. It's going toward this end point. And so, that's, so Jesus is kind of fast-forwarding. So this is, this is what's going to happen at the end of the age. When I come back and set all things right, and what is that going to look like? What's going to happen then, Jesus? He says in verse 49, the angels will come and they will separate the wicked from the righteous. So at the end of the age, there's going to be a separation. There's going to be a sorting. There's going to be judgment. And judgment literally means to divide. And there's going to be a judgment, a division, a separation between the wicked and the righteous. And so what you probably would ask when you're reading this, then who is the wicked and the righteous? Who are they? They're not the good people and the bad people. Who is defining of the wicked people and who are the defining of the righteous people? An original Jewish hearer of this parable would think this. The wicked people are everyone that's not Jew. The righteous people is everyone who is a Jew. That's how they divided humanity. So all the ungodly, wicked people would be all the Gentiles and everyone that's non-Jewish. And all the righteous, godly people would be the ones that are Jews. Jesus comes along and turns that upside down and blows that up completely. Because he says, look, it, it's, it's the righteousness and the wicked are not divided by ethnic. They're actually divided on how they respond to me. How they respond to me. How they respond to the message that I've sent. So if you look at the context, in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, the only one that's a Christian there is the fourth one. And it says this, verse 23, but the one who received the seed, the message of the kingdom, the good news of what Jesus has done, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. That's the one who receives this seed. What happens? It fell on good soil. And this man who hears the word and understands it, and he produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So what's the difference between the wicked and the righteous? The righteous are the ones who receive the message of Jesus. They're the ones who repent of their sins, put their faith and trust in Christ, and he begins a good work that produces good fruit. The wicked are the ones who reject that. That's how division happens. It's that simple. It's that clear. The righteous are the ones who have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. It is not their righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. That's why anyone who calls themselves a Christian in here, you should not be arrogant. You should realize that your goodness and your righteousness is not of your own. It's alien. It's outside of you. God did that work in you. And the wicked are the ones who reject that, who want to stand on their own righteousness. So at the end of the age, there's coming a separation, a judgment, a sorting between the wicked and the righteous. The righteous are the ones who have received the message of Jesus the wicked are the ones who have rejected it. And so here comes our first sort of objection, like our first kind of difficulty with this truth is because it's hard for us to kind of reconcile this idea of a God who's loving and a God who judges. A God who's, whose character is loving and at the same time a God who brings about judgment. Like our desire 
is that we just want things to kind of end okay. You know, Jesus, God is going to just kind of forgive everybody and overlook everybody's sin and wickedness. And, and in the end, everybody's just going to be fine. Or we want, you know, kind of like a repeat, so to speak. Maybe we miss it the first time we go around. And maybe God gets us back in here and allows us to repeat it so we, you know, we, we get a chance to make it right. Or we want to believe that, that maybe just everything ends, that we just get to a place where, where we just cease to exist. Well, the problem with that even though it's really difficult to reconcile a God who, of love and a God who judges, is that it's nowhere in Scripture. Like we're a people who stand and sit under the Word of God. And these are not Lyle's words. These are Jesus' words. Yes, Scripture is written through authors by human beings, but it's ultimately authored by the Holy Spirit, ultimately authored by God himself. And so look, this is, this is not just anybody laying before us and telling us what's going to happen at the end of the age. This is God in the flesh. This is God himself walking on this earth saying, hey, this is where it's headed. This is what's going to happen at the end. There's a judgment, a separation, a sorting. We see this all throughout Scripture. And I'll give you just a brief sampling of it. Matthew 25, verse 32, this is a parable we'll unpack in a couple weeks. Before him, talking about Jesus, will be gathered all the nations. Kind of a similar mindset here. And he will separate, there's our word, separate, sort, judge, people one from another. A shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In 2 Peter, Peter gives us kind of like some of the Old Testament allusions to this reality that we're facing, that we're headed toward this judgment at the end. Look what he says in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into glooming dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if... He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them what? What has he made all these people? What has he, what has he made all these Old Testament references? They are examples for us in 2018 of what is going to happen to the ungodly, of what is going to happen to the wicked, of what is going to happen to those who reject the message of Jesus. He goes on, or another writer in Hebrews chapter 9 says this, but now he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once. And what happens after that? They face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to do what? To bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And what is implied in this whole, the text is this, is to bring judgment on those who are not. Salvation for those who are waiting for him, the righteous, those who have received the message of Jesus, and judgment on those who are not waiting on him, those who are wicked who have rejected the message of Jesus. This is the end. This is where we're going. One final scripture, Hebrews 10, verses 30 through 31, says this, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will pray. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God.
So it's hard for us to reconcile this, this idea of God of love and a God who judges. But we see all throughout Scripture that this is true. I mean, over and over we see these warnings. And at the same time, we got to remember this, guys. Look, all loving people are sometimes filled with anger. All loving people are sometimes filled with wrath. If you've got kids here, you've got children, and if they're engaging in some kind of activity as they get older into something you know is going to harm their bodies and harm their souls and, and harm their life, if you are a parent who loves them, you're not filled with indifference. You're filled with a rightful anger, a rightful wrath toward what he's doing or what she is engaging in that's actually destroying them. Look, anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And hate in its fullest fruition is indifference. God is not indifferent to wickedness. One writer puts it like this. God's wrath is not some kind of cranky explosion. But his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race, he loves with his whole being. In Christianity, you've got both a God of love and a God of judgment. If there is no judgment, then there's no need for salvation. If there is no judgment, then life is cheapened. If there is no real judgment, then guys, there's no real grace. It's just an illusion. There's no real mercy. But because there's a real judgment, there's real grace that can be found in Jesus Christ. There's real mercy that can be found in Jesus Christ. This is where it's going. This is the the end. There's going to be a separation. There's going to be a sorting. There's going to be a judgment between the righteous and the wicked. And so he goes on here at verse 50 because what Jesus does in this parable is he emphasizes the fate of the wicked. He doesn't even talk about the righteous. So what happens to the wicked? Look what he says here in verse 50. And throw them, the wicked, into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what in the world is Jesus talking about when he says the fiery furnace? Well, the fiery furnace is a picture of hell. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And what some of us want to do with that is that we want, to, we want to kind of downplay it because we want to say it's just a metaphor. That hell isn't literally a fiery furnace. So we want to, you know, some people want to just kind of downplay it because it's just a metaphor. And I want to argue that, yeah, it is just a metaphor, but that's not necessarily to downplay it. It's actually to exceed it. The metaphor is here to actually exceed the reality. The reason why there's a metaphor is that Jesus can't capture in our imagination how horrible the suffering will be in hell. And the best picture that he can give is a fiery furnace. So it's not less than, it's actually more than. The intensity of the suffering that's going to go on in hell is more intense than a fiery furnace. One writer says it like this, the suffering of the wicked in hell is so intense and so terrible, 
if it is not an actual suffering by fire, only such intense physical suffering can be used to describe it. The Bible uses imagery to portray the unimaginable. So don't dismiss this. Don't downplay this as that, oh, this is so archaic and we're modern thinkers. Remember who's saying this. This is God in the flesh. This is the God-man. And the point that Jesus is trying to make is this, is that hell involves intense suffering. And it goes on for all eternity. That's where the wicked go. Who are the wicked? Are those who reject the message of Jesus. And this is another one that's really, really hard for us, man. It's hard for us to, to reconcile a God of love and the idea of hell. Like, what in the world? Like, it's really hard to kind of, like, bring those two together. And this is kind of how we um, sort of visualize this. This is kind of the conversation that we have in our head when we try to kind of reconcile this idea of God of love and the idea of a literal physical hell, which I do and we do believe in that. We believe in a literal physical place called hell. This is kind of how the conversation may go. This is what we think. I think it's on the screen there. God gives us time, but if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, he casts our souls into hell for our eternity. And as the poor souls fall through the space, they cry out for mercy. But God says, too late. You had your chance. And now you will suffer. That's a wrong picture of humanity there, guys. You can look in Luke. I think it's Luke chapter, um, I want to say 13, 14. There's a parable of a man named Lazarus and a poor man. It kind of gives you a picture of what's going on a little bit in hell. And in that parable, you can just go home and look at this. In that parable, there's never one time where Lazarus repents of his sin. He actually calls forth and asks the poor man to come and serve him. His whole narcissistic self-centeredness where sin is about bending in on yourself is still in full display as he is in hell. You go to Revelation, after one of the judgments, there's no repentance. They are still shaking their fist at God. They're still in rebellion against God. Look, guys, that's not a picture of humanity here. God is not casting people into a pit as people are crying out, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let me out. No, what God is doing is giving people what they want. And what they want is they don't want God. C.S. Lewis says it like this. And remember, here's a man who was an atheist at one time. There are only two kinds of people. Those who say thy will be done to God or those to whom God in the end says thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. So some of you are going like, why don't God do something about it? 
Why does he stop this? Why does he save people? Why does he do something to, so they don't have to go to this horrible place called hell? And I just want to say he did. He came down. He sought us out. He showed us who God is in the flesh. And he went and he was brutally murdered. He exhausted the wrath of God so that you wouldn't. Something that none of us in this room deserved. It wasn't like humanity's going, hey, save us from this. No, humanity, all of us in this room, were pointing the middle finger at God, saying, bug off, leave us alone. I want to do my own deal. And God, in his great mercy and in his great love, came down and took on flesh so that we could escape this. C.S. Lewis says in another quote, he says this, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. And here's the question. What are you asking God to do? What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has done so. He did it on Calvary to forgive them. They will not be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, I am afraid that is what he does. Why is hell so horrible? It's because the felt presence of God is absent. Why is there still beauty in this world? Why is there still joy in this world? Why is there still love in this world? Why is there still laughter? And I know there's a lot of evil. I know there's a lot of wickedness going on here. I'm not blind to it. I'm not sticking my head in the sand. But all of us in this room probably at least one time this week, most of us, laughed or experienced a little bit of joy. Even if it's going out and looking in the field and you see those random flowers. I don't even know what they're called, but they got the little yellow, all right? Just out in the middle of a field. And there's something about that that brings a joy to your own soul and your own heart. You know why that's there? Because God's presence is still felt here. Jesus comes and he gives us a warning. This is where it's going. It's linear, not cyclical. It's not a cycle, and we keep repeating, no, it's linear, it's going, this is where it's going. It's coming to an end. And in that end, there's going to be a separation, there's going to be a sorting, there's going to be a judgment of the wicked and the righteous. And the wicked will be taken and cast in hell, where there will be intense suffering for eternity. So what do we do with this? Um, my prayer for my own life, my prayer for us is this, is that we will hear this warning. And I think the way we know we're hearing this warning is that there is a, um, a renewed sense of urgency. Not, not an urgency that, that's equal to anxiety, right? There's an urgency that is like you're freaking out and you're really tense and you're like, calm down. You know what I'm saying? Like that's not what we're after. I think we're after more what we see in the life of Jesus as he lived here. He lived with urgency, but you don't feel anxious when you're around him or when you read about him. 
There's a calmness when he's in your presence. There's a, there's a way for him to enjoy things in life. But there's a, there's a determination about the way Jesus lived here. And I think there's one thing that, that the idea of judgment, the reality of judgment, and us believing in the reality of that judgment and hearing the warning, I do think it raises a, um, a, a renewed sense of urgency in our lives that is greatly needed. So I'll just give a little example. And so I know this may be a little funny, all right? So I'm not trying to take the weight of the truth away from us. I'm just trying to give us a little example of, of kind of how uh, sometimes we need this renewed sense of urgency. We've got a We've got a fire alarm in our house that's extra sensitive. I mean, crazy sensitive, all right? I get it. You know, anytime we, we cook something in the oven that's 400 degrees and above, you know, usually there's like a, probably a dinner at the bottom of our oven. I don't know if you guys have a clean oven. Our oven's usually not very clean, and it's burning things constantly, all right? It's just like, well, that's from last night, and probably need to get into that, but that's a big job, so I'm not worried about that. But every time we open the oven, like, obviously smoke comes out, and so I get that. The smoke alarm goes off. But sometimes it doesn't even, like, there's no smoke coming out. It's almost like the heat. It's so sensitive to the heat. And so when this first happened, I mean, I'm talking a couple years ago. I mean, this is something we deal with all the time, all the time at our house. Uh, We're fanning it, trying to get the stuff, you know what I'm saying? But the first time this ever happened, you know, both of our our kids, youngest specifically, came downstairs and go, what's going on? What's going on? Is everything okay? You know, because it goes throughout the whole entire house. Like, what's going on? Is it fire? Is it fire in here? And, no, no, kids, it's just the oven. You know, everything's fine. So, so after a couple years, this goes on. Every time the fire alarm goes off now, no movement. <laughs> None. Texting, watching TV, playing video games. Every once in a while, Kathy, the guy will go out there and go, everything's okay. I want to make sure you guys know that. Next time you hear that, you might want to check with us just to make sure that everything's okay, right? I know this goes on all the time, right? And what's happened is they just became numb to it, haven't they? They hear it so much that they just become numb to the, the warning that a fire alarm is supposed to give us. I think life has a way of doing that for us, doesn't it? Has a way of kind of numbing us to what is important, numbing us to what is of real value, and sometimes numbing us to the point where we no longer have an urgency. I mean, I get it, man. We got work. Some of us got school, tests, quizzes. We got kids. We got kids. (laughs) We just sit there for a few minutes, right? Practices, recitals, games. We gotta pay bills. Someone's gotta pay taxes, right? Gotta fix our car, gotta get new tires, gotta change the oil, gotta repair leaks at our house. All these things that, that make up life have a way of numbing us. And what I want this passage to do to us, including me, is that there's a renewed sense of urgency. This is where it's all going. And I think one of the ways that we can see, am I, am I stepping into this renewed sense of urgency? I think the word I would just kind of camp out on as we leave here in just a few minutes is the idea of repentance. If we get the urgency of that judgment is coming, this is 
where it's coming. There's some of you in this room that needs to repent and put your faith and trust in Jesus. Stop putting it off. What, what are you waiting for? What, what, do you, what else do you need? What sign do you need? What, 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 what else do, do we need to have a conversation? Like, stop putting it off. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is a day of salvation. I've said this week after week as we work through the parables. If you are here and you've never given your life to Jesus, then stop putting it off. It's always this tension that I'm battling with because I don't want to like manipulate people into receiving Jesus. I don't want to kind of like scare people into it. So it's always this battle between me of like, yes, expressing patience. That we as a church want to be patient with anyone that walks in here who's got all kinds of questions about Christianity, about God, about Jesus, even swallowing huge truths like this of hell and judgment. Like, I get it, man, and I want to be patient with you, and we want to sit down and, as best we can, answer as many questions that you may have. But at the same time, I want you to feel the urgency. Look, someone's dying today. We don't know who, but we know statistically there are many deaths going on today. And for some of us in this room, it could be someone you're really close to. And that veil between life and eternity is really thin. And your only hope of escaping the, the rightful, justful wrath of God against your wickedness is Jesus. And that's not unfair because none of us in this room deserve it. Everybody gets in the same way. It isn't about where you grew up. It doesn't matter if you came to church or if you're a good moral person. It doesn't matter. The only way we get in is through Jesus. That's it. And everyone is invited. Everyone. And that's why we as a church feel a call of God to go to unreached people groups so that they will have an opportunity to hear the good news and escape the wrath of God. So that everyone is invited. And so, Lao, how do I sense this urgency? Well, if you're here and you're not a Christian, then today repent and fly to Christ. He's your only hope. Stop putting it off. For others of us in here, our repentance looks like this. We need to repent of our apathy. And I'm primarily talking about those who are in Christ, and I'm talking to myself. Apathy. We just don't care. How many of us in this room legitimately prayed for a lost person this week? Look, guys, we exist as a church to reach people with the gospel. Yes, we exist to build you up as a follower of Jesus Christ, but that has an aim, to send you out in the world in order to reach people with the gospel. That's why we started this new work seven years ago. That's why we at Sojourn Community Church do multi-site, not to be cool, but to reach people 
We see multi-site as a strategic way to do city reach because it's through starting new works that new people hear the gospel and respond in repentance and faith. That's why we exist. That's why we did a campaign, making room. We raised over $700,000 so we can extend this facility. Not that it's the only way we reach people, but we do believe that the facility is a means by which we reach people. It's an opportunity for people to gather in one space and hear the gospel. And we want the space to be bigger so more people can come and hear the gospel. That's why we exist. Guys, we are not here. Please don't take this in the wrong way. I just, look, we're not here just to switch sheep. I'm not here to just, you know, provide another place for church people to go. Yeah, like, guys, please, there's a balance there. Like, I do. I want to be a place where those who are just over-churched and done with all the manufactured smoke screens, lights, shows that goes on in church in our Western culture. Where just, I'm just done with all that. I want a place where I can just kind of rest. I want to be that place. But I also want to be a place that reaches people with the gospel. New people who have never heard about Jesus. And yes, surprisingly enough, in the surrounding city of Louisville, there are people who have never heard about Jesus. And that's on us, not on them. So I don't want to swap sheep. If that's all we're going to do, then I'm out. I'm just going to be honest. I'm out. I want to reach people. And so this is a repentance on my part of apathy that can be kind of bred in us as we just go through life. And we lose a sense of urgency. That every day, every day, people are dying and going to hell. That is for real. And we, as a church of God, have a call of God to be a carrier of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to give hope to people who need Jesus. So what does that look like, Guys, look, like you don't need an evangelism training class to know how to share to God. You just, just go be a Christian, right? I'm just, I, I mean, I know it sounds very trite and simplistic, but there's a part of me, just go be a Christian. Love people, especially those people that are jerks towards you and, and speak badly of you and are evil towards you. Man, extend mercy. I'm just telling you, man, that's beautiful. Suffer well. We have a, we have a reason why we can suffer well, Right? That's what it means to be a Christian. We suffered different than the world suffers. And there's something in that that attracts people to Jesus. It's like the megaphone that God uses to say, hey, this is how wonderful and beautiful and awesome Jesus is, right? It doesn't mean we're not honest in our suffering. It doesn't mean we're walking around here happy, clappy Christians all the time. But there's a way that we suffer that attracts people to Jesus. Be a Christian. Share your story. You don't have to know the Romans road and the three questions there and the faith acronym and all these things that we made money off of for crying out loud. Look, just share your story, right? You have a story. Share it with them. No one has to train you to do that. I was lost. I was a one jacked up individual, right? And God did a new work in my life. I showed up at church and Heard the message, received it, 
and he has changed my life. We have no idea what God would do with a short, simple, clear story of the change that Jesus does in someone's life. Share your story. Invite people. Sometimes I think we forget about the the softballs that are right before us, even with Easter coming in three weeks. Invite people to come. Like, we still live in a churched area, and most people think church and Sunday. Invite them to come. You never know what God's going to do with just a simple invite. Pray. Pray for your family members. Pray for your neighbors. No one else is doing that. Do you think you're, the unbelieving friends are praying for one another? But you have an opportunity to pray for your coworker. You have an opportunity to pray for your family member. You have an opportunity to pray for your neighbor. Because we believe that the only way someone responds in repentance and faith is when God comes and opens their eyes. It's a miracle. And we as the body have a beautiful privilege to go before God and say, save my neighbor. Do a work in their life. Bring something in their life to where they wake up to the reality of death. Open their eyes, God. Like, cry out on behalf of them. May we as a body feel this burden. This is not my burden only. This is our burden. This is the church's burden. And when we get that judgment is coming and we feel a sense of the urgency, guys, look, we repent of our apathy. We repent of just not really caring that my neighbor's going to hell. I'll end with this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says this. So then, we know. Well, what do we know, Lyle? What do we know, Paul? What it is to fear the Lord. And in that context, guys, he's talking about judgment. We know where this is ending. We know there's a judgment coming, a sorting, a separation of wicked and righteous. And so what do we do in response? We try to persuade men. We tell people about the good news and the hope that is found in Jesus. May God, man, do his work in our lives and renew a sense of urgency that is desperately needed. Let's pray.